So what we've been doing uh, over our seven o'clock services is uh, showcasing different bits of the Alpha course. And the idea of this has been to show you, if you were to invite a friend to come on the Alpha course, what sort of material would be covered and what sort of stuff they would see in the new Alpha film series uh, that's been produced. And uh, this evening we're looking at the whole subject of evil and how we can resist evil. And uh, I have to say that right from the beginning, evil is, is something that is very personal for me, uh, not because I'm particularly sinful, although you might have a different opinion on that, um, but evil has been part of my life. Today is Father's Day, and I was reflecting on my dad who died uh, five or six years ago. And for 16 of those years, um, he was a spiritualist, and I saw firsthand the effects and consequences of evil in someone's life. Now, different people have different opinions about whether evil exists. And uh, the Alpha uh, film series crew took uh, a camera out on the streets of the UK and they asked different people, do you think evil exists? And these were some of their answers. No. No, you're going to have to say no to that one. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Evil? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's an evil influence per se. Not really, no. Evil comes from the mind and the mind is physical. Why do I think bad things happen? Oh my gosh. Not the same reason good things happen. It just, they just, it just is. Evil has to exist so that good can exist. I'm a great believer in karma. Yeah, what goes around comes around. Like you've got heaven and hell, I don't really know my thoughts on that. It's just bad luck. I get tempted by um, procrastinating. Or money, obviously tempts people. Shops. <laughs> yeah. Cigarettes, beer. Booze and sex and all that sort of stuff. Going out and buying lunch every day instead of just making it myself. The kind of quick fix is very tempting, but I try and... So you can either withdraw from it and just ignore it, or you can go for it and see what happens. So, different people's opinion on whether evil exists. Very quickly, turn to the person next to you and say whether you believe that evil exists. Don't point at them and say you're evil, but just ask them, do you think evil exists, and if so, why? Go for it. Okay, so different people's ideas, whether evil exists or not, whether good and bad things, well, obviously they happen in the world, we see them around us. And it's a strange paradox is that many, many people in our society find it easier to believe in the existence of evil than they do in the existence of God. 
Uh, if you look at buses going round uh, Edinburgh at the moment, uh, some of them are advertising a film uh, called Hereditary, and it says, This Generation's Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist was a film that came out in the 1980s and scared lots of people. Um, and they were very, very frightened by it. And it caused actually lots of all sorts of problems for people, psychological problems uh, for people. The screenwriter of the film The Exorcist, a guy called William Peter Blatty, said this, As far as God goes, I am a non-believer. But when it comes to the devil, well, that's something else. The devil keeps advertising. The devil does lots of commercials. Now, the reality is, I think you would agree, is that we do see evil all around us. We see it in the society in which we live. We see it in the news that we watch. We see it, perhaps, even if we're honest, in the mirror, perhaps, when we look at ourselves sometimes in the morning or the evening. And the history of humanity is punctured by incredible cruelty and inhumanity, from wars and genocide to injustice and selfishness. Evil comes out in different ways. It comes out in a personal level. It comes out in a cultural level. It comes out at a national level. And even sometimes it comes out on a global level. There's global and personal suffering in the faces of refugees trapped on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Or perhaps the violence of a terrorist attack at Westminster or another shooting in a U.S. school. Or perhaps closer to home, it's our own selfishness in a traffic jam or in a relationship. It's a strange thing that most great fiction tells the story of good against evil, a hero against a villain. Think of Harry Potter versus Voldemort, as Ralph Fiennes with no nose. But it's this sort of classic story of good against evil. And all those books, those seven Harry Potter books, were all about whether good, whether love in the end would win. There's Gandalf versus Saruman in The Lord of the Rings, that amazing book, uh, a set of books by Tolkien. Uh, I've actually stayed in the room in Oxford where Tolkien wrote those books, actually slept in the same bed where Tolkien slept. And those films that we went to watch in Lord of the Rings, where they ended and then ended and then ended and then ended and then ended, were all about good versus evil, heroes against the villains. There's a Batman against the Joker, Optimus Prime versus Megatron. We're going for the classics tonight. Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty, Peter Pan versus Captain Hook, or of course, Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader. Good against evil. And it resonates with us as human beings. Even though it's fictional, it strikes a chord in each of our lives because we're aware of this battle, this tension between good and evil. But where does evil come from and how do we resist it? Well, according to the Bible, there is a being called the devil, a created spiritual being. He appears to have been an angel who desired equality with God. In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't mince his words. He describes the devil in this way, a thief who comes only to kill and destroy. 
Jesus then goes on to say, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. But the first half of that verse is this description of the devil, the thief who comes only to kill and destroy. And as we see the effects of sin, of evil in the world, then it is associated with things to do with destruction and death and fear and doom and everything that is not of God being affected into people's lives. The early church leader Paul told the early church this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, right at the start of the early church, there was this tension between good and evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Another leader in the early church, Peter, warned the church that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know what you think of when you think of a lion. Maybe you think of Simba. Ah, Simvenga, or whatever happened at the start of The Lion King. (laughs) I had the experience about 12 years ago of, of going on a safari in Kenya. And uh, they took us, and um, there were about six of us in, in the Land Rover, in this, this big Land Rover. And uh, at one stage, we saw some amazing things. We saw elephants, we saw giraffes, and we saw all sorts of stuff. But at one stage, they took us to this rocky outcrop. It was just like out of the Lion King. And on one rock was this lioness. And on these other rocks were her cubs. And the driver of our Land Rover parked the Land Rover in the middle. (laughs) On one side was Mummy Lion. On the other side were the cubs. The only way of getting from that rock to this rock would have been to have gone through our Land Rover. And I well remember one of the people in our Land Rover just saying out loud what everybody else was thinking as the driver came to a halt in between mummy lion and baby lions. This voice just went out across the African savannah plain. Why would you do that? (laughs) And suddenly and strangely, this Bible verse came to mind. When you come face to face with a roaring lion, as we did later on that day, it's the male lion actually does nothing. It's the female lions that do all the work, all the hunting. The, lion, the, 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 the male lion just lies around and sleeps most of the time. Um, it resembles members, apparently, what an activity and dynamic in our family. Um, but when you come face to face with the raw strength of a roaring lion, you think about this verse differently. Because a lion isn't a cute, cuddly Simba figure, but there is raw power and raw energy and raw muscle. 
And Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Perhaps the most extreme example of the effect of evil in the life of somebody that Jesus encountered was in the life of a man who had been overcome by evil. He's referred to in lots of the gospel accounts as the demon-possessed man. And Esther's going to come and read a description of what happened when Jesus and the disciples met this man on this occasion. The verse today is from Luke chapter 8, and it's verses 26 to 33. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. It's a strange incident. In the previous chapter, Jesus had healed a centurion's servant. He brought back to life the son of a widow. And Luke tells us he cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Now in Luke chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates his authority over creation and nature. He's sailing across the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm, and Jesus speaks to the storm as if he's addressing two small children or a bunch of puppies. He just says, be quiet and get down. And Luke tells us that the storm subsides. And the disciples turn to each other and they say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And having crossed over the Sea of Galilee, they arrive in this region called the Gerasenes or the Decapolis, the Ten Towns. And this is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from Nazareth, from the part of Palestine where Jesus spent most of his time. And that's significant. Because the Decapolis, or the Ten Towns, or the other side, was where, according to the Jewish people, God didn't live. And Jesus deliberately goes across to the other side. This was where good religious people didn't go. This was where the Romans had set up their headquarters and had actually put a pig on the top of a spear as a sort of symbol of their domination over that particular part of the Middle East. 
And the Jews believed that God stayed on their side of the lake. The Romans had made their headquarters on the other side. But now Jesus crosses over to the other side. As if to demonstrate that from now on, there are no no no-go areas for Jesus. There are no areas that are off-limits to Jesus. There is nowhere that is able to withstand the influence and the power and the character of Jesus. He deliberately crosses over to the other side to demonstrate that not only the wind and the waves obey him, but actually the whole of creation obeys him. And there are no no no-go areas for Jesus. And they've just survived this storm. The disciples probably are a bit seasick, perhaps, and they're a bit ill, a bit worn out, a bit pale. And they get off the boat, and suddenly they're met by this deranged man who runs at them. He's naked. He's, he's probably dragging chains behind him. He's, he's bleeding because he used to cut himself. He, he lived in the tombs. And he's shouting at them, What do you want with me, Jesus, most of the son, son of the Most High God? And the disciples probably look at one another and go, I think we're getting back on the boat. Because this is weird. This is funny stuff. Again, remember, they're Jewish. And all the experience at this point is absolute confirmation of what they've believed up till now. That this is the other side. This is where God does not live. This is where the power of God is limited. And they see, as it were, evil personified running towards them and shouting at them, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. He's naked, he's deranged, he's violent, obsessed perhaps with death or the dead as he lives in the tombs. He is homeless and he's friendless. Now he is perhaps the most extreme example. He uh, is described, as I say, often as a demon-possessed man. That's not actually a correct translation of the, the Greek word. The Greek word is diamatotosai. And that literally means demonized. It doesn't mean demon-possessed. Demon possession is where a demon or, or evil spirits completely take over somebody who has voluntarily opened themselves up to evil. And people who are very experienced in deliverance, deliverance ministry or working in this particular area will say that this classic case is perhaps one in 10,000. So full-blown possession is very, very rare. But what happens to most people is that they're afflicted or oppressed by evil spirits. Now, most evil spirits are dealt with. They are around us, but if we're a Christian, then they can't really touch us. They can't really influence us. They can afflict us and they can oppress us, but they certainly can't possess us because the Holy Spirit is living inside us. So you cannot have an evil spirit living inside you if you are a Christian. But what an evil spirit can do is because of repeated or willful sin, it can gain influence over you. It can attach itself to you. Most are dealt with Actually, just by coming into church. 
by being in the presence of people worshipping God, by people who are reading from the Bible, by people who are praying, think of this as a sort of spiritual shower or bath. Most of the evil is just sort of cleansed off us as we worship God. But if we repeatedly and willfully sin in a particular area, we can leave ourselves open to influence by the demonic. But this man is much more extreme than that. This man, has, his whole being has been taken over by these evil spirits. But there are two or three things, just very quickly to point out. Firstly, verse 28, the demons recognize Jesus. The man falls on his knees and cries out, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, for the disciples, the 12 people who were traveling with Jesus, the defining moment for them is about to happen. In a while, at a place called Caesarea Philippi, Jesus would turn to them and ask them, Who do you think I am? Or who do people say that I am? And different ones of them would say, You're Elijah, you're a prophet. Peter would have this inspired moment and he would say, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. But that hasn't happened yet. And yet the demons inside this man recognize Jesus for who he is. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of of the Most High God. And up till now, Jesus has not let evil spirits speak. When he's dismissed them, and again, I want to draw a distinction, Jesus heals people from illnesses. Over here. He rebukes evil spirits. The two are not the same thing. He prays for people, he touches people, he lays hands on people, and he heals people of sicknesses, of diseases. He rebukes evil spirits. But when he sends them out of people, he will not let them speak. He keeps them quiet because he doesn't want his identity yet to be revealed. Just like the wind and the waves, he's dismissed them with a word. Now, when we start to talk about the demonic and evil spirits, some people get a bit frightened by them. Satan will always try and appear to be more powerful than he is. He's a thief, but he's also a liar. And some Christians often give him more power than he actually has. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing, and Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. That's God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. Satan is a created being, and that means that his power, his knowledge, and his influence is limited. But he will always try and give the impression that he's bigger and stronger than he is because he's a liar. But the demons know who Jesus is. But secondly, verse 29, Jesus removes the effects of the evil one. 
When they meet this man, he's dangerous, he's violent, he's out of control, he's out of his mind, he's alone, he's isolated, he's a danger to himself, and he's a danger to other people. And significantly, he's lost his identity. Jesus asks him a question. What is your name? And the answer that the man gives is revealing. He doesn't reply with a good Jewish name. He doesn't say Benjamin. He doesn't say Joseph. He doesn't say Levi. He doesn't say Zacchaeus or Lazarus or David. He doesn't reply with a good Jewish male name. In the version that Esther read for us, uh, the New International Version, the word is translated as legion. Again, hints of the Romans. Legion, because we are many. The Good News Bible actually has a better, more evocative translation. When the man is asked, what's your name? In the Good News Bible, he replies, mob. It's more threatening. It's more evocative. It's more violent. But the man doesn't know his name. He's lost his identity, and he's lost his sense of belonging. He's alone. He's living uh, in the tombs, in the graveyard, and he's completely isolated from other people. He's a danger to them, and he's a danger to himself. And again, that's one of the consequences. That's one of the effects of evil in our world. People become increasingly isolated. God desires that we live in relationships with each other, in society, in community with each other. God himself is the perfect community in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the consequences, one of the immediate consequences of sin was the breakdown in relationships, the relationships between God and humanity, but also the relationships across humanity. I wonder if you know that we live in a nation in the United Kingdom, maybe a group of nations, that since January has had a minister for loneliness. If ever you needed a commentary on our culture, on our society, it's the fact that in the UK government now we have a minister for loneliness. Because we may be somehow fooling ourselves to think that we're the most connected society that has ever existed. But even now, your phone is buzzing with the latest goal alert from Brazil versus Switzerland. That if you wanted to, you could pull out your mobile phone and see what was happening in the world. You could see what was happening on the far side of the world. But the paradox is that we might know what's happening thousands of miles away, but we don't know the names of the people where we live. We might not know the names of the people who are sitting around us. We might not know the names of the people at work or at school or at university or wherever we spend most of our time. The most connected society but also the loneliest culture that perhaps has ever existed. 
That's one of the effects, one of the consequences of evil in your life and in my life, is that relationships break down. There was a striking quote in an interview with Kylie Minogue a few years ago. She said this, At 10.30 in the evening, I could be cheered and applauded by 20,000 people. By 11 o'clock in the evening, back at the hotel, I ask at reception if there are any messages for me. I'm told no, and go to my room alone, and I cry myself to sleep. Adored by 20,000 people at half past ten. Lonely and crying herself to sleep just 30 minutes later. Famous, rich, materially wanting for nothing, but emotionally and spiritually perhaps wanting for everything. And the reality is that you could repeat that interview with Kylie Minogue, with pop star after pop star, musician after musician, with footballer and sports star, with celebrity after celebrity, even the stars of Love Island. God bless them. Why are they on that program? Why are you watching that program? Because we're desperate to be known and we're desperate for relationships. Jesus dismisses the evil spirit, sends them into a herd of pigs who drown themselves. The pig handlers are freak out and they go to get help. And the result is that when they come back from the town where they've gone to get help, they have this amazing picture that Luke gives us of what happens when Jesus removes the effects of evil. Verse 35 reads like this. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus wants to do, longs to do in every single human life. To bring restoration, to bring hope, to bring that recovery of identity. The man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a picture of discipleship. He's become a friend, a follower of Jesus. He's got clothes on. Before he was naked. Well, where did those clothes come from? They came from the other disciples. The person who had a spare cloak or a spare robe gave it to the man. And there he is sitting at the feet of Jesus with clothes, with friends, and the effects of evil have been removed. And the striking thing is that he asks Jesus if he can go with them. And Jesus refuses his first prayer request. He says, no, you can't come with me. You need to go home, restore some more relationships, be reconciled to your family, and go and tell them what God has done for you. And the man goes home. 
and tells people what God has done for him and does an amazing job, such an amazing job, that the next time Jesus crosses over to the other side, Jesus and the disciples are not met by one person. They're met by hundreds of people who have heard what Jesus has done for this one person and they bring their friends. They bring their friends who are sick. They bring their friends who are in need of healing and they bring them to Jesus. And there's a sort of mini revival that breaks out on the other side. So how do we resist evil? Firstly, by recognizing that it is a reality. Evil does exist. We don't need to be scared by it. We don't need to give it too much power, too much authority, or too much influence. But it is a reality, and it does exist. If we're Christians, the Bible says that we have crossed over from darkness to light, from death to life. That we are in a war, that we're in a battle, and we have crossed over from one side to another. But that battle has been won. At the cross, Jesus, Paul writes in Colossians, has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This isn't, this isn't a, like a game of football where we're unsure as to who's going to win. The result is guaranteed. Jesus has already won the victory. But we're living now, if you like, with the mopping up operations. As Libby was reminding us this morning, we're living between the now and the not yet. Between that time when the the fullness of God's kingdom will come and where we are now, living with the consequences and effects of evil, with death, with disease, with sickness. How can we resist evil? Well, firstly, by overcoming evil with good. If you're living a good life, if you're living the life that Jesus wants you to live, if you are, as the Bible puts it, walking in the light, then you will resist evil. If you're seeking to do what Jesus wants you to do, if you're seeking to influence other people for the kingdom of God, if you're following the way of life that God wants you and I to live, then you are resisting evil. Now, there are other things that you can do to help you do that. You can know Scripture. Jesus, when he was confronted again and again by the devil uh, in the temptations in Luke chapter 4, the way he responded was to simply repeat Scripture. He knew the truth about himself, and he knew the truth about God, and he knew the truth about the world, and that was one way that he resisted evil. Secondly, don't give evil too much power. Thirdly, overcome evil with good. Fourthly, recognize that it's a spiritual battle as well as a practical battle. So you need to pray for protection and you need to pray that God will enable you to live the life that God wants you to live. But Paul reminds the early church, greater is you, is he, sorry, that is in you than he, the devil, that is in the world. So the Holy Spirit that is inside you is greater than the evil one. So don't give him too much power or influence and don't allow yourself to be cowed 
by the evil one who will try and pretend that he's stronger and more powerful than he really is. Recognize the truth about yourself. Recognize your identity in Christ. Keep yourself close to God. And recognize that there are no no no-go areas for Jesus. And live your life in such a way that you don't come under the sphere of influence of Satan himself. I've used this example so many times over the years in this church. And I've tried to think of a better one. But I can't, so I'm going to use it again. And apologies if you've heard this before. If you've done the Alpha course with me speaking, you will have heard me uh, give this illustration. But it is the best illustration of spiritual warfare that I know of, and it comes from Tom and Jerry. If you're familiar with the works of Tom and Jerry, some of the finest cartoons that have ever, ever been made, um, some of the best ones were, were those involving Spike the Dog. And there's one particular one where Tom uh, and Jerry and Spike the dog are, are, are running around the house. And Spike is tied up in the doghouse. And he's tied up, and he, he, every time Tom and Jerry run past, um, uh, Spike the dog lunges out of, of the kennel and goes, Row! When I did that about 15, 20 years ago, uh, Ray's dog was at the back and it barked back at me in the evening service. But Spike the dog lunges out and goes, and and, and Tom, the cat, realizes that um, Spike can't get him. And so what he does is he draws a line in the grass. And the next time they run round, Spike again lunges out of the dog kennel and goes, And Tom the cat just stands there, and as Spike the dog lunges out, of course, miraculously, he produces this club from behind his back that he hadn't got before, where he gets because it's a cartoon. I'm looking at Grant because his nan, you know, makes cartoons. And um, Tom just goes, whoomp, and hits Spike on the head. And Spike realizes that as long as he's chained, he can't get to Tom. And that enables Tom to get Jerry the mouse. And then Jerry realizes what's happening. And so the next time they run around, Jerry gets ahead of the game and he rubs out the line. And he draws a different line. And it's a line that's nearer to Spike. And the next time they run around, Jerry runs off and Tom comes and stands by the line And to his absolute horror, Spike the dog jumps out and grabs him. And in a way that only cartoons can portray, eight of Tom's nine lives jump out of him. Because that's the end for Tom the cat. And it's a very powerful picture that if we live our lives under the sphere of influence of the evil one, who is chained. That's one of the ways that he's portrayed in the Bible. He's chained. He's limited. But if we step into his territory, then he can affect us. But if we stay over here and live the life that God wants us to live, walking in the light and not with one foot in the light and one foot in the dark, then Satan can't 
touches. So how do you resist evil? Fundamentally, by living the life that Jesus always intended you and I to live. Libby.